teen, yeah, kids, I, I always forget. Yeah. I mean, they should just sit and listen. Grow up a little bit, you know? Or we should go there. <laughs> yeah, John chapter 13, and I, I'm, I was reading yesterday a lot about uh, Jesus and his life, and is anybody watching the Chosen series at all? It's kind of fun. I mean, you know, if you don't like it, it's okay. You know, we're not going to condemn you. <laughs> but it's a great series to kind of put some uh, meats to what we read here in our Bible, and we understand that's not all exactly what happens in the Bible, and Dallas says that himself, that he has a poetical license to, you know, kind of talk about what's going on there, and, uh, but we really enjoy it. But re- uh, watching the series and reading the Gospels, it's so amazing to see how God speaks and how he acts, isn't it? So in John chapter 13, it's an amazing story because Jesus, what's happening in Jesus' life is that he's kind of coming towards the end of his time here on earth, and he's preparing his disciples for him to be gone. So let's read verses uh, 33 through 35. It says, little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I'm going, you cannot come. So now I say to you, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that also love one another. By this all we know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Isn't that a great verse? So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray for these words, that they will be from you. We don't want to make up stories. We don't want to make up doctrine. We don't want to make up anything, but as... The disciples clung to your words. We also cling to your words. And as they sought from your word to give them life, we also seek your word to give us life. So we pray that as we hear these words, if there's anything that needs to change, that you will help us. You will help us to hear. You'll help us to act. You'll help us to obey. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This is interesting because this is a very important part of the disciples' life and also Jesus' life because the disciples have been following Jesus for around three years now, right? And here they are, and they're getting ready for Jesus to leave, and Jesus has said that a couple times already, I believe, yet the disciples have not really grasped the idea of their Savior, not only their rabbi, not only their teacher and friends, But remember, they are really looking to him as their savior from the Roman Empire. And they have learned a lot from Jesus, yet there is still this little bit of expectation that he will save them from the Romans. You know, sometimes we pray to our God, even today, Jesus, we pray to him and we expect him to save him from our own governments, our own little problems, but he is so much more than that, isn't he? You know, stop being so shallow in your walk with God and asking him to heal you from these little tiny things when God says, I have so much more for you, which is really what he's saying to disciples. But saying that, this is a big point in the disciples and Jesus' life. And there are several things that is pointing that this is the end of Jesus' time on earth and his end with his time with the disciples. Some things right there in chapter 13 is that right in the beginning, he is washing his disciples' feet. I love that story. Uh, there are some churches that do that today, symbolically. I was reading a book the other day. I think it's called Lead Like Jesus. 
at all their conferences. They all get down and wash each other's feet, you know. But the amazing thing is Judas was there, right? And at the end of chapter 13, actually just after this passage, Jesus foretells his coming crucifixion and the way that he will die and, the, and that he will be crucified and, and beaten and captured. And then also Peter is so ambitious about this that he says, No, Lord, that it will not be so. I mean, this is the disciples' understanding like how who Jesus is. They still really don't understand that he is a savior from their sins, not from their governments. They, they still don't understand it. And as this is being revealed to them, the disciples are getting more and more nervous. And that is why Peter says no, because after all, if he is the savior, then how could he die? Even though that Jesus has already mentioned it three other times and here, uh, two other times, and here is the third time that I am not going to be here. Yeah, and actually, listen to this. In verse one, it starts with these words: it "says Just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the time had come to leave this world and go to the Father." Like, Jesus knew that this time was coming. And as we read here in verse 33, he says, I will be with you no longer. So this is a very, very important stage in Jesus' life and in the disciples' lives. So you think, when somebody is getting ready to leave or to depart, um, isn't, don't you think their last few words are important? It was funny, yesterday, uh, you know, we, were, we visited my parents uh, this past week and we're kind of sitting on the front porch, and we're saying bye to them. And it's always like an awkward moment. It's like, what are you supposed to say when you're leaving? But for us in the body of Christ, it's very different because we don't have to say goodbye and, you know, and be sad or whatever. But when there is a, a parting, we understand that we will see you again because of the life that we live, not only here on earth, but the life that we will live in a resurrected body. You know, but here are the disciples. They're, they don't understand this yet. They, don't, they haven't learned that so in his preparation for leaving, he begins equipping his disciples. That's what's happening here in verse 33 through 35, is that Jesus is saying, I'm going to leave, and now because of me departing, because I'm not going to be here long with you, I need to equip you. Now, Jesus has been equipping his disciples for three years already, right? But right at the end, there is something very special those last few days, those last few moments with their, with their rabbi, with their teacher, with their friends, with their savior, those last few moments are very special. And although the disciples don't understand that quite yet, Jesus does. And that's why he kind of starts getting a little bit deeper and a little bit more somber in the way that he speaks and acts and interacts with the people. And to me, as I was reading, you know, the book of John, this here is the kind of the beginning of Jesus equipping his disciples for his departure. After there are many other things that Jesus adds to John 13, 33 through 35, there are many things like the, the gift of the Holy Spirit, right? That is a huge part of the disciples being equipped, uh, very specific direction, in the disciples' lives. All these things are very important, but right here is where it begins. And it begins with a new commandment. Isn't that interesting? 
And as I was reading and studying him, I mean, you know, ultimately, this isn't a new commandment, is it? I mean, this, Jesus has already said, the two greatest commandments. The first is to what? Yeah, love the Lord your God. And the second is like it, and it is to love your neighbor. All the way in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, what did, Je- uh, what did God tell the Jews? To love the Lord their God with all their hearts, with all their mind, with all their soul, with all their strength. Like, they're, like in one sense, the new commandment that God is giving, or Jesus is giving to the disciples, is not new. But actually, I was thinking about it. It's because Jesus is saying this is a new commandment, but when he is saying this, he is looking forward to his own death, isn't he? So, and then he says this one thing, and, and, and I, this is so amazing. This is kind of where I want to hone in today, is when Jesus says, I have loved you. Now, let's, let's read the whole passage. It says, you know, verse 34, new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. But then he says, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. See, that phrase is so amazing. Like, Jesus is commanding his disciples to love the other disciples. And we could broaden that horizon through Jesus' teaching that he is saying that we are to love others as we love ourselves. We are to love others, even our enemies. We are to love our neighbors. We are to love the Lord. We are to love our parents. Over and over again, the Bible gives this commandment that we are to love. And we understand that as believers, we are commanded to love, but oftentimes we find ourselves without the capacity to love, right? (laughs) Some people are easy to love. Some people are really hard to love, aren't they? And you love them, and you give them some room to grow, and they disappoint you, and what happens? You get upset with them. And over time, after this happening over and over again, what we find ourselves doing is that we find ourselves distancing ourselves from other people because we are so frustrated the way that we have loved them and they are not producing the results that we have asked them to produce, so therefore we no longer love them. And one writer said this way, actually several writers have said it, um, but the one that I read this morning was from... I just drew a blank. (laughs) Desiring God. Oh, my gosh. John Piper, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, John Piper says that to love others best, we must love God the most. Don't you love that statement? Uh, Kenneth Boa says it this way. He says, to love others completely, I must love God fully. Right? And the emphasis here is that I, that my love, the way that I am directing my love towards others, first must be directed towards God. But actually, we learn something even more interesting, is that there is, it is impossible for me to love God without Him having ever loved us. And that's why it says in verse 34, he says, that you love one another as I have loved you. That's an amazing statement. As I I have loved you. Now, we're going to kind of dig into that and tear it apart here in a minute. But I was thinking about this. As I have loved you. you know, this word that is being used uh, for love, and you, most of you probably know this is agape, right? And you understand that in the Greek, there are several words that are used to describe for love. In our English language, we only have one word, right? Same word that I use for my wife, I also use for pizza. It's terrible, isn't it? (laughs) 
Now, do I love pizza more than my wife? Absolutely not, but I use the same word, you know? Do I love football more than I love, you know, absolutely? Well, yeah, I'm looking at Jill. <laughs> you know, I mean, there are different degrees of love, but we use the same word. But in the Greek, there are different degrees of this word. And even inside of agape, there can be different, uh, different degrees because of the verbiage that the Greek uses. But I wanted to read what this word agape means. And, and, and you guys know what it means, but come to it with a fresh mind. You know, kind of wipe the slates and think that you don't know it because this is amazing. It is a love that does not need or require emotional, verbal, or physical response in return. Isn't that one good, quick definition? That agape love does not require emotional, verbal, physical response in return. Meaning that when God has loved us, he is not requiring us to respond to him. Now, should we respond to him? Yes. Isn't it great when we do respond? Yes. Because relationships are a two-way street, right? They require two people. And forever, God has been initiating to humankind, but mankind has not been responding. But then there are those of us that say, yes, Lord, I believe in what you said. I believe you are my Savior. I respond to your love. I receive your forgiveness. I receive your grace. I receive your correction. I receive you, God. There are a group of people that do respond to him, but there's also another group that, even though that they have never responded to God, are being loved by God today. You know what, it's amazing because some of you guys have responded to God's love at a younger age. There are some people that responded at an older age, right? But do you know what? God has always loved you. It hasn't changed that. Listen to this. The object is loved unconditionally, disregarding response or rejection. This love wills to initiate a relationship. That is amazing. The love of God, the agape love of God, wills to initiate a relationship, and it shows kindness and self-sacrifice regardless of whether you'll ever respond to that. You know, I know this to be true, because as your pastor here, sometimes I sit here, and I was talking to another pastor, and he says, you know what, when we go out on evangelism, our desire is that that person could receive Christ and he could believe or she could believe just the way we do. And we will that relationship. We will that initiation. We will that kindness. And it's expressed in, in love and kindness in the street, isn't it? Like we don't run up to them with a bat and believe in Jesus, boop. Believe in Jesus, boom. No, we come with kindness. We come equipped with the word of God. We come with patience. And we come to them, and they could be unbelieving, they could be unresponsive, but yet somehow in our life, we are willing it to happen. Yet it doesn't happen. And we walk away, and we say, wow. And we pray for them at the end of our time, don't we? Every, we, get, we get under the, the pagoda, and we, we pray for each person that we talk to. Why? Because God is bigger than that. Because they might respond later. But see, agape love is seeking for that, you know, so that if I can have that towards a stranger on the street that I have never met, don't you think the God who created all this universe, the God who willed you into existence, has the same desire towards you? Now, you could also reverse that. Yes, we are believers, but we're not always obedient, 
right? Because God's will also should be followed by his obedience. Like his, you know, he wills to have this relationship with us, and each one of us are different in our relationship with God. And there are areas in our life that God wills to initiate a relationship, and we are saying no. Yet God agapes. Let me see here. C.S. Lewis says this. This is amazing. Christian love, either towards God or towards man, is an affair of the will. Now listen to this. Agape love is so different. Storgeo love is like this lustful kind of sensual love. Uh, phileo love. No, sorry. Storgeo love is a mother's love, right? This is a mother loves his children, right? Moms, do you love your children? All right. Looking for the eyes rolling, like, no. <laughs> All the kids are looking at their moms. Do you love me, mom? You know, little puppy eyes. Yeah, so, sorgeo is a mother's love towards its child. And Paul uses this word towards his church as he is, you know, birthing, you know, in pain, trying to mature the church and trying to have people come and believe in Jesus and be disciples. You know, another word is eros, which is the, the, the sensual kind of love. Phileo is a brotherly love and agape love. But all those other words, those other three words, are emotional, aren't they? And C.S. Lewis says, but this is agape love is different because it is the only love that requires your will and not your emotions. He continues, he adds this thought by saying, love is the Christian sense, does not mean an emotion. It is a state not of feelings but of the will, meaning that if I, if my love is not an emotional response, then it is void of the conditions that is attached to the emotions that, it, that emotions evokes. Meaning this, like eros and phileo is, could be an emotional love. Right? So if I'm living in an emotional love, then what happens is that there's conditions in our relationship. And that's what we, ha- that's what we see so often in this world, isn't it? That people and their love towards things is very conditional based on so many different things. But God's love comes in and says that my love is not emotional towards you, but it is an act of my will. It is first an act of my will. So despite your response, because I am not emotional this way, despite your response, my love for you doesn't change because I have willed it towards you. That's so amazing. So we see that this is how it says, like, I have loved you. God has directed, and I was thinking about it this way. I keep forgetting to look at my clock. I'm trying to pay attention, guys, okay? I was thinking about it. How, how has Jesus loved his disciples? It's a good question, because he's saying to his disciples, I have loved you. And this now is becoming the standard in which I am to love the other disciples. Meaning, we could say it this way. God, God said, I have loved you. So that example of love, that, that, that love becomes the example on which I am to love you, the church. And you guys, to each other, sitting next to you. Whether you're new or you've been here forever, whether you're a new believer or an old believer, it doesn't matter. God is saying this love that I have loved you with is how you are to love others in the body of Christ. So for me to understand the way that I am to love you and the way you are to love others and the way you are to love me, 
I have to understand how did God love the disciples. And there's many things that could be said about it, but we're going to say three things. Number one, uh, Jesus' love was a costly love. You see that in John, and this is all from John 13, John 13, 31 through 32. In that passage, we see Jesus mentioning the word glory over and over and over and over again. Glory, glory, glory. And this is a different idea than what we have for glory. Glory for us means promotion, doesn't it? How many would like a promotion at work? I would love a promotion. More money and less work. (laughs) You know, and to us, that's our idea of glory. We uh, people, you know, recognizing who we are and the things that we have done. But in John chapter 12, 23, Jesus changes the definition of glory. He says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. What did Jesus mean by that? Well, it's time for me, Jesus, to uh, take my throne from the Roman Empire, to annihilate all you and you little Gentiles. I guess you're going to be my co-leaders, but I'm going to be glorified. I'm in charge. This is my creation, and you are my people, and now I'm going to exercise that authority over you. Is that what glory means? No, it's not. He says, the hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. In verse 33, he says, this he said, signifying that he would die. Isn't that interesting? The way that God and Jesus define glory was by his very death. That's what glory actually means. That word glory is interesting. Because, I mean, these light bulbs are a good example because they have little dimmer switches. You know, the light is shining. That is an element of glory. But you can increase the lights. That means more glory is being added. And to think about Jesus having glory in heaven and setting that aside so that way he could come to earth as a human means, we could say it in one way, means that the glory was reduced. And in Philippians it says that, right? It means that he was humble and he came to this earth. But then he is redefining his glory, not as sitting on the throne in heaven, being the creator, being in charge, being our savior, being our father, but he's redefining glory as being the savior and dying on a cross. Naked, beaten, Bloody, unrecognizable. All his disciples leaving him except John. That is how Jesus decided to define glory. The price was more than his life being sacrificed for our sins, but we also see that all the sins of the world, like it's interesting, like we think, well, he's on the cross and he's dying and that is what it means to be sacrificed or that's what glory is. But what happened on that cross was that all the sins for the entirety of time and for the whole world were laid upon him. So much so that the Father had to turn his back. Was that costly? Oh, Jesus died for my sins. Oh, he did much more than that. He bore our burden. He died. And he came to this world. So was the love of Jesus costly? Yes, it was. And sometimes as believers, we, we, we run past that with such familiarity that we forget and we're never broken by it ever again. But if we were to think about it in a way that if without 
the love of Christ, without that costly love, where would we be today? Every one of us would be trying to work for our salvation. <laughs> we'd, be, we'd be these you know, Gentiles trying to obey Jewish, Jewish rituals. Can never have shrimp again. Never eat a crab cake for the rest of your life. You know, I was up in Maine and we had a lobster, lobster stew or bisque, I forget what we had. You know, can never have that again. You know, because of the Jewish law. You know, we'd be in a different world today. But the love of Jesus was costly. Number two, that Jesus' love was caring. Aren't you thankful that his love was caring? John chapter 13, 33. Listen to what he says to the disciples. He says, little children. <laughs> little children. That's not a mocking tone like it would be if I was say, were saying it. They're not sarcasm, not mocking. But it actually, this was a, a term of endearments. You know, this is the only time in the entire Gospels that the disciples recalled this. After three years, three and a half years of following Jesus, and all that they have learned, they have cast out demons, they've been used to heal people, they have been preaching the Gospel in other parts of the of, of of the world, other parts of, of, of Israel. They have been doing these things, and now Jesus decides to use this term, little children. It wasn't to belittle them, but it was used in such a way to express his care towards them. It says, uh, it was a word of tender, care, uh, tender feelings, much as a father has towards his little children who needs his help and protection. See, what Jesus was saying is that I understand that I am leaving, but I also understand that you need my care and you need my protection. And that's why later he equips his disciples with the Holy Spirit, right? But, but he's saying this, like, I understand I am your father. And I know you need my care. I know that you need my protection. And that is why I am saying this to you. And you know, this is an interesting time that Jesus says this because Jesus washes the defeat of the disciples while Judas is there, but now Judas is gone. And he uses this term and says, I understand that you need my care and protection. Another scholar says this, he says, uh, Albert Barnes deepens our understanding of this word by revealing to us that it denotes the deep interest that the Lord has in the personal welfare of the disciples. Meaning that Jesus wasn't saying, okay, I'm, I'm headed out of here. Good luck. I'll see you later. I've taught you for three and a half years. If you don't know what you're doing by now, then too bad. No, that's not the, the kind of care that God has towards his disciples. But he has this kind of love towards his disciples in such a way that he says, I want you and I care for you and I will protect you in such a way that you will do well. Like, I want you to do well. I am interested in your welfare. You know, how many of you guys can say that from, you know, any kind of leader today? You know, maybe in your maybe maybe your coach, maybe your boss at work, political leaders. I mean, we could, you know, are, is there this tender care that they have towards us? Do they care about my personal welfare, or are they interested in the own, their own ends? And I am so thankful that I serve a Savior who cares about me. That I am important. 
Number three, Jesus' love was a committed love. Jesus' love was committed. John 13, 36 through 38. We didn't read those verses, 36 through 38, but it is interesting because that involves Peter's denial, doesn't it? There's so much that could be said there in those passages and so much that we could expound upon and learn. But the number one thing that we, we, that we do learn is that God's love towards Peter was committed. Despite his failure, despite his, his selfish ambitions, despite his humiliation and his guilt, Jesus still used Peter, didn't he? I mean, isn't it amazing? I love it. At the end of the, of the Gospel of John, Jesus says, do you love me? Do you love me? Right? What words are, are he using there? No, it's the opposite. He's using agape. Like, do you unconditionally love me? Do you unconditionally love me? You know, and that, is, that hurts Peter because he has failed Jesus. He was weak. He was unable. Right? So Peter was guilty. He felt guilty. That's why even after him revealing himself being resurrected, he still followed you know, his old ways and went fishing because of guilt, because of his failure. And how many times in our own life does guilt and failure dictate to us what we do for God? Oh, I will love God. Because his response is, Lord, you know that I love you. Lord, you know that I love you. But that word was not agape. And Jesus answered another time, do you love me? Do you phileo? Do you love me with a brotherly love? <laughs> Peter's like, yeah, you know that I do, Lord. Then feed my sheep. See, what happens when God is committed to his people I mean, I love the other, there's another verse that says it, right? The, 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 um, the gifts and the calling of God are without repentance. I mean, that God has a calling upon your life. And sometimes we mess up, don't we? I mean, every day, if you're honest, we mess up. And because of that, you know, legally, you know, we could say, like, well, now I have lost my position. I have no, no, I shouldn't even be in the presence of God. You know, because of that, I should lose my calling, and God could never use me again. And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching against. That even though that there is failure in your life, even though that there are things that you should be ashamed of, even though there is guilt in your life, I am still committed to you. I mean, Peter preaches an amazing message in Acts chapter 2, and thousands are saved. David looks down on Bathsheba and sins with her. Yet God still will have him, you know, still Jesus is a seed from David. And he is a man after God's own heart. Abraham is called the father of our faith. And every time that he entered into Egypt, he says that Sarah was his sister. <laughs> Thirteen years, there was silence from God. I mean, from Abraham towards God. For 13 years. And he is called the father of our faith. It doesn't mean that he was faithless. It means that he had faith despite his own failures. It doesn't mean that David was perfect. It means that he understood that he needed redemption. He needed a Savior in his imperfection. It wasn't that Peter was a great orator and he couldn't be replaced. Out of all the thousands of Jews, there probably was 100,000 people. <laughs> there was probably so many people that were better than Peter. Yet Jesus was committed to Peter. 
Isn't this amazing? So love, actually we see in, in John chapter 13, verse 1, it says, having loved his own, this is commitment right there, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I love that. That's how John chapter 13 starts. And this whole thought of agape love is being sandwiched with all these other stories. So these are a few aspects, right, of Christ's enduring love towards us and towards his disciples. We can look at these verses and we see these great examples and, you know, we could sit here all day and turn to verse after verse after verse in the New Testament and in the Old Testament, backing up these, two, these three ideas. Number one, that Jesus' love was costly, that Jesus' love was caring, and Jesus' love was committed. And from this, what do we learn? That Jesus' love being costly, it reveals the self-sacrificing nature of God. Through Jesus' love being caring, he reveals his desire for us to grow. Through Jesus' love being committed, he reveals his unconditional nature towards us. And you know what? And here's, here's what happens is Jesus says to his disciples, as I have loved you. So here is Jesus and here is his love towards us. You know, here, here's what happens in the Greek there, there is different moods. This is in the indicative mood, meaning that there is a statement of fact or of absolute, uh, let me see if actually, or there's, this is a statement of fact in the Greek, meaning that I, this is something that I have done. God has sacrificed himself for us. God has been committed to us. God has committed, uh, God is caring for us. This is an absolute, but when he says it towards his disciples, so that you should love others. That word love is not in the indicative mood because it's not a fact. The mood changes because now it becomes an option. See, it's almost like it wasn't an option for God to do it. It's something that already was done. And we read that the lamb was slain before the foundations of the world. I mean, that even before time began, his love was in the indicative mood. It was a fact, a statement already done. Even before the failure that you committed five years ago, his love was a fact. Even before the failure that you're going to commit in ten years, it is still a fact that God's love is real and it is in my life. But here we are as humans. And Jesus is saying, I am commanding you to love the church. I'm commanding you to love other disciples. I'm commanding you to love, you know, me, your neighbors. I'm commanding you to love but the mood changes because God understands that this may or may not happen. I mean, that it is possible for us in our humanity, in our flesh, in our weakness, that our love for God will fail. <laughs> Have you ever failed God's love? Yes. I mean, the Bible and the New Testament calls it grieving or quenching the Holy Spirit, living in disobedience, um, maybe... It, it, God told you to go help a neighbor and you were disobedient to that, you know, that is all failing God's love, right? After all, you know, God has sacrificed so much for us, you should do a better job at being good. No, 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 no. God knew our weakness. God knew our frailty. 
yet he still gives us commandment to love. So many people make the mistake of saying that this is like an example of what we should be like, and this is, and if we're not, then we are imperfect. Well, we're already imperfect. So guess what? <laughs> but does that relieve us from the duty of this being God's commandment towards us? No, it doesn't relieve that commandment. That's why the emphasis, it is so important that we understand how God has loved us. Because when we understand the way that God has loved us, it gives us a capacity. Like, the knowledge doesn't motivate us, like, oh, God did this, so now I better reward him for doing something, right? It's like um, you get a Christmas present, and you're like, oh, well, now I have to get you a Christmas present. That's not how Christmas presents work, right? But somehow we do that anyways. You know, like we, like we try to do this thing. Like that is not how knowing God's love works in our life. Knowing God's love in our life works this way, where it has affected us, and now it is producing a change. Just like an apple tree grows and it produces apples, when I am basking in the love of Christ, when I am sitting under the authority of the love of God and I am receiving teaching and I am hearing the word of God daily and weekly and the word of God becomes such an important part of my life, when this is what's happening in my life, then what happens is that it produces a change in my life where now I am growing apples. I am loving others. Not because I am a lovable person or because I am, uh, I like, I'm a motherly person where I love to love people. I'll feed everybody. No, my capacity grows because of God growing inside of me. And Jesus says, like, unless this is happening, unless you're, like, you know, John Piper said, how do we, how do we say it? Actually, I didn't even write it in my notes. Love God most, or yeah, if I love God most, I will love others best. Unless I am loving God, then I am not loving others. And John kind of turns that. Unless you are loving others, you're also not loving God. John, 1 John 4.20. Interesting verse. Meaning that if I say that I love God, and I'm not loving the body, then I'm actually not loving God. Both ways are true. But I could love you, but I could also not be loving God. Right? So first... Learn how God has loved you, then love God, and then love others. And we'll find ourselves in this way, that I can begin to elevate your needs above mine. Isn't that amazing? How could the Apostle Paul go to these different countries and preach the gospel and, and not have food and not have a place to sleep? and preach day, every single day, it was because he elevated your needs, their needs above his own. He said, it's more important that they hear the gospel than I have an extra hamburger. It is more important that they, that they hear the gospel and I, that I, I travel the extra you know, 30 miles to go and preach the gospel over there than for me to be comfortable here in my living room. See, that we begin to elevate each other's needs. Each one of you are so amazing and you have very specific needs, and I have the opportunity through God to meet those needs. I have the opportunity to love you. And does it cost me something? Yes, it costs my time. But it's okay, 
because of who Christ is inside of me. And I can have a caring heart towards you, meaning that I can be more concerned about your growth than about my own. You know what? Like in this church here, it's not about Pastor Dennis in my kingdom. <laughs> and if it is, you know, God corrects me. Because that's not what church is about. The church is about everybody learning and becoming a disciple. And you know, maybe some of you guys have greater gifts than I have. And should I become jealous because of your gifts or envious because of your gifts and you're a better orator or you draw more people than I do? So then I become jealous and envious? No, that's not agape. <laughs> that's not agape. But actually, the opposite should happen that I see that and I, and I, and I glorify, I, I lift you up, I help you, I promote you. And I become committed toward, you know, that love, right, becomes committed. I want to say something, like, I think this is like, it's easy to preach this message here because this is already what's happening. But each one of you becomes so important in this church and, you know, it happens so quickly. When, when, I mean, how long have you been in the church, Rich and Jill? You, yeah, yeah, six or seven months. I feel like it's been five or six years. You know, I feel like you guys have been here forever. Why? Well, because of that right there, that there's a commitment. Like, all of a sudden, like, like we get to know each other, and we're committed, and there's already a relationship. You know, when we were living in China... And there are people today that still didn't even receive Christ. To this day, they still haven't received Christ. But you know, I know their names and I remember their faces. Why? Because they became such an integral part of my life. They became important in my life. It's the same thing in the body of Christ that each and every single one of you become an integral part of this church. And you become important in this church not in a functioning kind of sense, but in a personal relationship kind of re sense. So in closing, you know, what can we learn from this? I, I want you to think about that, the new commandments, not in a condemning way, not in a thing like you have to go out and don't look at it as a checkbox. Uh, there are three new ways that you have to love somebody next to you. Of course, maybe that would work, so maybe we should do that. All right? No, no, no. It's not how it works, right? There's no checkbox. You know, but what, I, what, what do I want you to do? I want you to understand and begin to learn a little bit deeper about agape love and how God says when he has loved us, it is a fact and it is unconditional. And when I begin to learn that, that is when my life changes. Amen. Amen. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this evening. Uh, we pray for our fellowship. Just as we have gathered around the word of God, we have received the word of God. We, you know, we have heard it. We ask for it to go deep into our, into our hearts, into our minds, and we can you know, mull it over in our brains so we can think about it. And maybe there's one or two little uh, one-liners that we remember from the message and we just rehearse it for the rest of the week and it encourages us and it deepens our walk with you and it, it, it solidifies our relationship in the body of Christ that people could leave here today not questioning their importance in the body 
but encouraged in the commitment that they have in the body. That people could leave here knowing that they are loved not only by God, but by other people in the church. We just thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.